All right. Okay, guys. So um, everything's working now. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and get us started. So we are now continuing with the Crusades. Last week we did, or two weeks ago, we did the Crusades part one. And then uh, this week, tonight, we'll do Crusades part two. And we're really, the goal is to hit the rest of them. And so I actually ended up putting more into this than I thought I would. Um, I figured the last lesson would have been longer. It wasn't. So I'm going to have to talk kind of fast. And then when we're done, I'll, I'll take questions. But um, just reviewing, well, kind of introducing and reviewing, right? We started on the Crusades last time uh, by way of memory. The word crusade is the Latin word uh, for cross. Well, it comes from that. Um, and so what the word crusade came to mean was a military mission or endeavor in the name of the cross. Let's spread Christianity by the sword. And obviously it was a, a Roman Catholic thing. Uh, you don't have evangelicals doing this. Um, but uh, it definitely was a period of Christian history that was romanticized in the West. But as we look closer at it, it was really tragic. Um, last time we got through the first crusade, that was the only one that was successful. <laughs> The first crusade, the Christians won. They, they conquered um, a, a full path through Turkey or Asia Minor, conquered uh, Antioch, and then went all the way down and conquered Jerusalem um, for, for the Christian West. And so once that was done, and it only took them three years to do it, and once that was done, um, the Western Catholics had control from Constantinople all the way to the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, I do want to say that not all of Turkey was conquered. Like, if you picture all of Asia Minor, Minor or Turkey, most of it was still under the control of the Turks. But there was like a big path from Constantinople straight to Jerusalem that the Christians controlled, and the Turks couldn't get control of that back for quite some time. Um, so the Christian empire was still surrounded by hostile territory, but that path was secure. And one reason that path was secure was because of the Crusades as a system of defense. Um, that's what it became. After the first crusade succeeded, all the rest were built around maintaining that system. So now that we got Jerusalem and now that we have the ability for pilgrims to uh, travel to Jerusalem without the Muslims stopping them, how do we keep this intact? And so this is pretty much it. What they did is you have this path from Constantinople to Jerusalem and they built 13 crusader castles. These were enormous very, very hard to defeat and conquer. Um, they're close to the coast, and so the, the Christian navy could resupply them. Um, so if the Muslims besieged them, hey, they could get food supplies, more troops, more weapons, because they're all near the sea. Uh, and each one had a lot of knights in them. And if you remember what I talked about last time, the knights were a whole new level of warfare. I mean, head to toe in armor. And all these guys do is perfect killing people. Um, you know, so knights were, were no joke. The, the Muslim warriors were no match for the knights. Pretty much the only way they could win is by vastly outnumbering them. Otherwise, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, they don't stand a chance. And so when you got knights that are in these, these massive castles that could be reinforced by the sea, uh, these were there to stay. And so the way it would work is if you're a pilgrim, you're coming from Europe, you want to go to Jerusalem, you get to Constantinople. Once you're in Constantinople, there's going to be some knights, some Christian knights that will escort you from Constantinople to the next castle. It's going to be quite a ways, but those knights are experts on that terrain. They know where the traps would be sprung. Um, so from Constantinople to the first castle, those knights will get you there. You're not going to get killed. Those Turks wouldn't, they'd be fools to mess with that group of knights. 
Florence. Once that group gets you to the first castle, they go back to Constantinople. Now you hang out at this castle for a while, and then those knights are experts on the terrain to the next castle. And so then they will escort you until you get to the next castle, and then it goes on and on until you've went through all uh, 13 castles, and then guess where you end? Jerusalem. And then when you want to go home, you get back the same way. So imagine walking across half the world and you have the world's best warriors as your bodyguards, you know, walking with you the whole way. And this is going to last for 200 years, this system. It's a very difficult system to undo once it's, uh, once it's created. Uh, so it's pr pretty interesting. Now, some of these castles still stand today. I'll show you a couple pictures on the, the next slide. But the largest one is Crack de Cavaliers. I, I don't speak French, but it's got 60 to 70 rooms. You look at this thing, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. So again, all this, the system turns the Crusades now not into a series of wars, although there will still be that. But again, it's now a system. The Crusades become a system. The, the first crusade set the stage for all that other stuff. Now, every day there was a crusading spirit because there's always pilgrims wanting to go to Jerusalem. And there's always knights there. So you could say the crusades never stopped. When we talk about first crusade, second crusade, third crusade, we're not like talking as if the crusade stopped and then started again. You always got that little spirit of it. But when we name a crusade first, second, third we're talking about like a major campaign. Like it's beyond the normal status quo. Something happened where like the Pope is saying, all right, you go to Jerusalem and you show these guys. Then all these knights in Europe are like, and you get this big force of people that move over there. That's when we say you have now a second crusade or a third crusade. There's a specific goal that they're, that they're aiming to achieve. Uh, and so getting to the, the second crusade then, it happens almost 50 years after the first. And there's going to be some things that happen in between. Okay, as I mentioned, the first crusade was a true success. It, it did what it aimed to do. It restored the pilgrimages, and Jerusalem now belonged to Christians. But in that 50 years, a lot's going to happen. First, the pope who started this whole thing, Pope Urban, he died. Uh, pretty much he lived long enough for Jerusalem to be captured, and he's like, eh, and he dies, okay? So... Um, you don't have the guy who motivated everybody to do this anymore. And then over that 50 years, Arabs strengthened their positions and slowly they surrounded the kingdom of Jerusalem. So even though Jerusalem was in the hands of the Christians and some of the, the nearby towns, the Arab kingdoms had all the rest. So if it was a chessboard, the Christian kingdom was surrounded. They were strong. All they have to do is fight a defensive war. That's why it takes the Muslims a while to get this stuff back. But for the most part, they are, um, they are surrounded. So let me show you these crusader castles just real quick. Um, this is that, that big one in Syria, the Croc des Chevaliers. Um, that's the outside of it. This is part of the inside of it. This is another part of the inside of it. You could go visit it today, I mean, if you want to fly to Syria. Um, it's still there. And then Karak, I'm not exactly sure where that is, but it looks like there's a paved road, so you could just drive right up to it today and you know, and check it out. But a lot of these things are still there. And that's impressive because those are a thousand years old. You know, we don't build things like that anymore. You know, your house is not going to be here in a thousand years. I'm just telling you that. Uh, it's made out of wood and plaster where, you know, that is, that is made out of stone. Now, the second crusade. 
Its years are 1147 to 1149. Again, each one is only a couple years long. And this one was precipitated by the fall of the Latin kingdom of Edessa to a Turkish army in 1144. If you remember, the first crusade ended with there being four Latin kingdoms in what we would call Israel today. One of them was the kingdom of Edessa and the Turks destroyed it and conquered it in 1144. So this event convinced the Pope that we need a new surge. And the Pope at this time, his name was Eugenius III. I mentioned him a couple lessons ago because he was the disciple of Europe's most famous pastor, Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, Bernard, just to remind you of who he was, he was the son of a, a crusader knight. That his, uh, his dad's name was Teslin Sorrel. He actually was one of the knights that conquered Jerusalem in uh, 1099. He had six sons. All of them went on to be knights except Bernard because Bernard's mom just looked at him and said, I had a dream. She did. She said, I have a dream that he's going to be more than a knight. And so she puts him in like religious school and, you know, he grows up to be a monk. Um, in fact, he becomes the head of a, one of the, the famous orders, the Cisternians, which I talked about, um, you know, two lessons ago. And Bernard grew to be the most respected theologian in all of Europe. Again, he, he never rose above Abbott because he didn't want to, but popes and kings came to him wanting to know, hey, Bernard, what's your opinion? Just a very influential guy. And so Pope Eugenius is like, look, we need another crusade because the kingdom of Edessa fell and Jerusalem will be next if we don't go and take that back. Bernard, everybody listens to you. You are my teacher. I need you to be the hype man for another crusade. And Bernard was a hype man for another crusade. And wherever he went and spoke, all of a sudden, hundreds of knights pop up, I'll go, you know. And so really, it was, it was a pastor that ended up uh, making the second crusade happen. Um, so, and by the way, one more thing about Bernard, I just threw this here. As a young man, he had a, a dream of the Virgin Mary and the Christ child, you know, those paintings, the Madonna. Um, and it left a lifelong impression on him. I don't know what that has to do with the Crusades, but just put it there anyway. Um, but anyhow, so again, he was a very pious, devout guy. And really, he was, he was just the hype man. So he preaches passionately. Um, oh, I forgot to bring the book. Um, because I have a, a textbook where it has a quote of what he said. And when I read it, I'm like, man, had I been in that crowd, I probably would have grabbed my sword and said to Jerusalem. I mean, it was just really, really good. I'm like, man, he said that? And if he would have said that with some gusto. Uh, but I totally forgot and I didn't bring the book in. But if you have um, uh, uh, Needham's... A church history series. It's a five-volume uh, set, very readable, very manageable. In the second volume, page 213, you can find the quote I'm talking about. If you don't have it, then I just teased you for nothing. Now, <clears throat> as far as the Second Crusade goes, again, Bernard was successful. Um, the Second Crusade is actually going to get some kings involved. It was, uh, one of them was King Louis uh, VII of France, his uh, life dates are 1137 to 1180. And you get the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad III. Those have to be his reign dates because that wouldn't be a very long life. But 1138 to 1152. And if you remember, the Holy Roman Empire is what we call, or, uh, Holy Roman Empire is what we called Germany back then. Um, it wasn't called Germany at this time. It was a Germanic kingdom that was like a renewed Roman Empire. But by this point, it didn't control all of Europe anymore. It just controlled what we called Germany. So you 
got France, and I guess you could say you got the German emperor, the Kaiser, the Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, you would think, okay, you got some heavy-hitting kings leading this one. You didn't have that in the First Crusade. First Crusade, you just had some famous knights and generals, but you got kings leading this one. Um, but this one did not work out. The Second Crusade was a failure. First, if you think back to the First Crusade, the Eastern Byzantine kingdom, they asked the West for help. They said, come, please. They didn't ask this time. So these crusaders show up in Constantinople like they've got the right to be there. And Constantinople's like, what are you doing here? We're not going to support you. We're not going to supply you. So that's going to make it a, a, a lot more difficult. And then you have Louis and Conrad. They both have big heads. They got egos. They each have different plans of how you need to run this war. And remember what I was talking about last time. It's very hard to win a war if you don't have unity of effort. If you have this force doing its own thing, that force doing its own thing. No, there needs to be a single director and in person laying out the strategy and the war plan. And you didn't have that. And so pretty much... In Asia Minor, a lot of these guys are going to end up dying from fever, famine, and just small-scale Turkish attacks because, again, they did not have um, the support from the Byzantines. And you have each king doing his own thing. There was only one serious military operation. It was an attempted siege of Damascus. This is a famous medieval painting of that. They're thinking, well, if we could take Damascus and Syria, that would put a big blow to the, the, the Muslim um, kingdoms of that area. But they failed to take Damascus. And so you go back to Europe, Catholic Europe, they were shaken by this. Like, how could we fail? Bernard. Bernard's the one who told us to go. And I mean, this is God's guy. You know, and the Pope told us to go, but we lost. And we went because the Muslims conquered one of our kingdoms there. So surely God would be with us, right? But we lost. So, of course, some people are like, it's those Byzantines. If they would have helped us, this would have never happened. And so some Europeans in their heart are going to want revenge against the, the Byzantines. And that will come later. But Bernard himself actually blamed it on Western Catholics. He's like, you know what? God wasn't with us because we're very immoral over here. Um, you guys, you know, say you believe in God, but you live very worldly lives. And so why is God going to help us win this war? Uh, so at the end of the day, this crusade, it affected very little. Um, it, it just didn't accomplish much. The Arab army was still around Jerusalem. Um, so it failed. And 40 years later, in 1187, Jerusalem will fall to Saladin. And I just want to say this out there. I mean, a lot of these Hollywood directors owe me money because I'm their hype guy. The movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom and Liam Neeson, it's set there. It's after the Second Crusade failed, but it's before the Third Crusade starts. It's all about Saladin capturing Jerusalem. And it's such a good movie. It really is. It was underrated, but it's good. And of course, all those actors play the role really good, uh, really well. And, uh, and if you get a chance to watch the director's cut, it's even better than the theatrical uh, release. Um, because <clears throat> it's even better than that one, because uh, I was able to, to watch it a couple weeks ago, because teaching about the Crusades put me in the mood to, I got to watch Kingdom of Heaven again. 
and that uh, theatrical or director's cut was great. But anyhow, because Jerusalem falls, and again, if you want to see how it falls, watch that movie. Because Jerusalem falls, there now needs to be a third crusade. And the movie even ends with King Richard showing up to France, asking Balliol, <clears throat> like, hey, I heard you were there at the fall of Jerusalem. You want to go with us? And he's like, no, but he tells them how to get to Jerusalem. Because right after Jerusalem falls in 1187, you're going to get um, <clears throat> you're going to get this, this third crusade, which is the most famous of the crusades. But before I talk about the third crusade, <clears throat> this might seem random, but I'm going to talk about Portugal. You might say, well, we haven't heard of Portugal yet. Well, it's because it didn't exist until the Second Crusade, or right before the Second Crusade. What is Portugal? Well, you know what Spain is. It's this big peninsula on the, the western side of Europe. And then on the west side of it, there's this little sliver of a country that we call Portugal. And you might be thinking, why is there a Portugal? Why isn't it all Spain? Well, remember, the Muslims owned much of Spain at that time. And you had a bunch of British, you had a bunch of English knights, and some from the Netherlands as well, from Flanders, uh, from modern Belgium. And they were sailing to the Holy Land for the crusade. Well, sailing from England and the Netherlands, you've got to go around Spain and go through the Mediterranean. As they were going around Spain, they just said, hey, why don't we just stop here and attack the city of Libsyn? Now, it was a Muslim city at that time. But they're like, hey, it won't hurt to attack it. They attack it. They conquered it. They killed everyone there. They're absolutely brutal. And then they said, you know what? No need to go to the Crusades. Our Crusade's here. We're fighting Muslims here. And they build a kingdom and name it Portugal. So that is how the Catholic kingdom of Portugal came into existence. Now, it might sound insignificant um, and, and all that, but Portugal is going to become really the, the founder of European imperialism and colonialism and all that stuff that's going to come. They begin the slave trade, um, all that stuff. This little tiny country that starts from a couple English and, and Dutch knights um, deciding to carve out a little kingdom for themselves in Spain uh, it's going to turn into a worldwide empire. You know, there's a reason Brazil speaks Portuguese, if you think about that. So that's, uh, that's where they come from. And then one more thing before the Third Crusade. Bernard, I want to bring up something about him when it comes to Jews and heretics. Not the same thing, uh, just <laughs> to make sure we all know that. Um, Bernard had a hawkish attitude towards the Crusades. So you would think maybe he's a hawk towards the heretics. Maybe he's a hawk towards the Jews. Because remember how these Crusaders often treated the Jews. Sometimes on the way to the Holy Land, they would slaughter Jewish villages, thinking, ah, God will favor us now. And it's almost the exact opposite every time. Bernard was not like these people. He said, Christians, we need to show tolerance to the Jews. And then he also said, heretics should not be forced to convert with the edge of a sword. Don't fight them with swords, fight them with arguments and persuasion and the Bible. That's how you do it. And I think Bernard needs to be properly remembered and commended for this. Now, he said all this prior to the Inquisition, okay, the office of the Inquisition. And so before the Inquisition, what Bernard said was tolerated. Once the Inquisition was founded, interestingly enough, you couldn't find these statements of Bernard um, in libraries too much anymore. They were suppressed because, again, people respected Bernard. They didn't want people to go back and read this and then say, oh, man, we're doing the opposite with the Inquisition. We're killing heretics and we're killing uh, Jews. Um, 
And a little bit more about Bernard. He was canonized as a saint about a little less than two decades, a little less than 20 years after his death. But later Catholics said, but in heaven, he has a blemish on his chest because he denied the Immaculate Conception of Mary. You know, and so they're, they're like, yeah, God let him be a saint because we canonized him as a saint, but God put a mark on him. And so forever you'll look at his chest and say, oh, that little mark on your perfect glorified chest is because you said that Mary um, was not conceived in a sinless womb. It's just, it's so dumb. But that, that's one more thing that I think later generations would say, well, because Bernard said that, we could also choose not to listen to him on how we should treat heretics and Jews. Uh, but what I will say, and also you also have in the next century, St. Francis became so popular, people forgot about Bernard. I mean, Francis was probably one of the most popular saints in all of history. But you fast forward a couple hundred years, when you get to the Protestant Reformation, Bernard was one of the few medieval saints hailed as a true believer by the Reformers. Remember, Martin Luther said that if he had to choose between reading Augustine's sermons or Bernard's, he would rather read Bernard's. Many of the Reformers loved Bernard. Um, they, liked, they thought his theology was, was good, and they liked his attitude on a lot of other things. But we're here to talk about violence, the Crusades. And the Third Crusade is the one that uh, everybody knows a little bit about. The Third Crusade is the one that captures everybody's imagination. Um, and, and if you've ever, if you're familiar vaguely with the Robin Hood story, you, you know a little bit about the Third Crusade. That's where this, uh, this uh, comes from. So the Third Crusade is from 1189 to 1192, and it was caused by the failure of the Second Crusade. The European failure, what it did is when the Christians show up there in massive numbers and they lose, all these disunited Muslims now reunite. So it's like, ah, you know, they were fragmented before, but now they're not fragmented. And they're following a guy named Salah, Saladin, is how we'd say it in English, or it's Salah, uh, Salahuddin um, in Arabic. And he was a brilliant Honorable Kurdish general, his life dates 1137 to 1193. He is one of my favorite guys in history. I know he's, he's Muslim, but he's so incredibly honorable. He was a man of integrity. If he gave you his word, he kept it. He never broke treaties with Christians. Um, so by 1186, his empire surrounds the kingdom of Jerusalem. And in the movie Kingdom of Heaven, when all those dumb knights don't listen to Orlando Bloom's character and says he's luring you out where there's no water, they go out anyway, they get thirsty, and then they get destroyed. That was at the Battle of Hattin in July 1187. So again, that movie shows that. And then with the Jerusalem army defeated, all that's left is a few, a few people in Jerusalem. And so Saladin was going to be able to, to conquer Jerusalem. Now, when it falls, just to put this in perspective, the holy city was held by Western Christians from 1099 to 1187. That's 88 years. That's a, that's a lifetime. There were some people who were born and died and never knew a day where Jerusalem was not in the hands of Christians. But really, you can only say there was only one lifetime of that. Otherwise, most lifetimes, Jerusalem was not in the hands of Christians. Now, one thing about Saladin is he was very honorable when he 
captured Jerusalem, he did not kill the Christian inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember when the Christians conquered Jerusalem? They killed every woman and child in there they could find. It was a bloodbath. Um, where was, when the Muslims did it, and it's mainly because of Saladin. If he wasn't the leader, then yeah, the Muslims probably would have done the same thing. But Saladin's like, I won't do that. And that was one of the conditions of their surrender, that you all can walk out of here alive. We'll give you safe passage to the sea. Um, and we're not going to stop pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Again, very, very honorable. And so his character put a lot of the crusaders to shame, in my opinion. Um, that's, again, I, I'm a fan of Saladin. I, I really am. Um, now, with the fall of Jerusalem, the West, as I said, was absolutely shocked. Pope Gregory VIII supposedly died of grief when he found out. So he's sitting there probably hearing bad news all day, and he's like, eh, well, it can't get worse than that. And then somebody's like, oh, Jerusalem fell today. He's like, you know, and then dies. Um, so before dying, though, he did proclaim the need for a third crusade. And when that call goes out, you are going to get three of the greatest kings of Catholic Europe to lead this crusade. King Philip Augustus of France, life dates 1180 to 1223. The Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, 1152 to 1190, those are probably his reign dates. And most notably, King Richard the Lionheart of England, uh, reign dates 1189 to 1199. And so let me talk about these kings for a little bit. Richard was known as Richard the, Richard the Lionheart. He was probably six foot five um, or taller, which was imposing for that time. Um, he was handsome charismatic. People were terrified of him, but at the same time, they liked him because he was charming, but deadly. His physical strength uh, made and his charm and charisma, all that made him a natural leader for war and politics. People wanted to follow him. And before the Crusades ever happened, he built a reputation of fighting many battles and was a just decorated military hero. This was a time when kings the good kings did not sit on their throne while their knights went out to war. They were on the front line. And so people tried to kill Richard. They end up dead because he's six foot five. He's ferocious. He's skilled. His beard is red. Not that that has anything to do with it. But the thing is, he's just, he's, he's a mighty man. Um, and so with him leading it, this thing's got a chance. Now, of course, you have a French king a lot softer than Richard, uh, Philip Augustus. He was terrified of Richard because he was everything Richard was not. He was short, he was weak, he was young, and he was French. You know, so you put those things together. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't like being in the same room with Richard because his inadequacies are, are very clear. But, but let me give Philip credit where it's due. He was a better administrator than Richard. He knew how to count money better, how to allocate resources, how to keep things running. Richard knew how to conquer Philip knew how to be a good administrator. And then you have this third guy, <clears throat> Frederick Barbarossa, cool name. He was the other major ruler, and uh, his red beard led to the nickname of Fred the Red. Um, <clears throat> and so he was a warrior as well, and he had a long history of fighting on front lines and slaying many people in mortal combat. Um, so, so Frederick was no joke, and he was able to provide 100,000 troops. So he's bringing more people to this than anybody else. But by 1190, he was 70 years old. And just to put it simply, he was a very fat man by this point. That fatness is going to lead to his death, not through heart attacks, 
but through drowning. Um, and so the third crusade is going to have some, some setbacks and that nearly doomed the expedition at its beginning. Frederick Barbarossa drowns near Tarsus. So he makes it, uh, he makes it to Tarsus is, um, and Cilicia. So it's going to be like between Syria and Asia Minor. He makes it to Tarsus, but uh, he drowns in the Salith River in 1190. And listen, this isn't even a big river. Um, Fred the Red was not crossing a big river. It, you know, most people could survive in that river. You could just walk across it. So he's crossing it on his horse, and a wise person takes their armor off. Because if you're fat and you fall in water and you got a hundred pounds of armor on, you're not going to be able to get yourself up and your people are going to have a hard time getting you up. Well, he fell into that water and he sunk and his men could not pull him up. He was just too heavy. So he drowns. What a way for this guy to go out. You know, he defeats many people in battle, but he can't defeat his obesity combined with water and armor. He drowns. And then he's going to be turned into a pickle, but I'll get there in a second. Um, His son, Frederick of Swabia, then takes command, but he didn't want to bury his dad in enemy territory. So they put him in an airtight casket with water and vinegar, and so he became Fred the Pickle, in a sense. So Frederick Barbarossa became a pickle, and they're bringing his body into battle, and eventually um, his son's like, okay, this isn't going to work. I need to take my dad back to the home country and bury him. But Richard, we'll put these troops uh, under your command and Philip's command. Um, but the problem was the German army is just not effective without his leadership, though. They didn't want to follow um, these other guys. And then between Richard and Philip, they bickered with each other all the time, which hindered early unity of effort. Now, what's going to finally start to, to turn this around is uh, the Crusaders will capture the great port city of Acre. Um, it's called Akka today. But Acre was like the most important city in Israel at that time, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem's important specifically for religious reasons. But Jerusalem's not near the water. It's up on the hills. Um, it's not an international like port city of trade. Acre is. It was the greatest crusader city in the Holy Land. It was the crown jewel because all international trade that comes in and out of the Middle East had to go through Acre. So that's going to make the crusader kingdoms a lot of money. Um, and, and so I guess um, Peter Bartholomew, before he walked on the fire and died, he was right that they probably should have taken Acre. They would have been stronger if they got it earlier, but... They get it now. So Richard is able to take that. After the Battle of Acre, Philip Augustus returns to France. He's terrified of Richard. Not fun being on the front lines with him. But he leaves his soldiers under Richard's command. This now has one leader, Richard the Lionheart of England. And now the Christians have a chance because there's unity of effort. And of course, as Philip's leaving, Richard threatened him. Um, He's like, hey, you better not touch Normandy when I'm gone. And if you understand that Normandy is in northern France, but it belonged to the English crown. Because years before, William the Conqueror conquered England from Normandy and became the king. Well, Normandy still belonged to William and all of his descendants. Richard's one of his descendants. And so, you know, Philip might be tempted to think that, well, Richard's all the way in Jerusalem. I could snatch Normandy and he wouldn't be able to stop me. But all it took was Richard to look at him. You better not. And Philip was so scared. He didn't even try. Okay. Now, when it comes to Richard, he's going to remain in Israel for at least another year. And he does not capture Jerusalem, but he wins quite a few other battles. 
Um, there's a couple times where he came close to being in a position to actually kill Saladin. And if they would have met in battle, Richard totally would have killed him because this guy was just, he was that, that tough. Um, and so he did beat, Sal like Saladin being a brilliant general, um, normally didn't lose, but he did lose battles. But conquering a city, a walled city, is a whole different ballgame. And Saladin defending Jerusalem just could not be beaten, not even by Richard. Um, and so then Richard says, all right, we'll go attack Egypt, because that is Saladin's, that's the base of his power. But he failed to uh, take over Egypt as well, so that didn't end up working out. But despite his two big failures, his successes caused his reputation to grow among his Muslim enemies. They feared and respected him. They feared him so much that at the time, Muslim mothers would scare their children when they were being disobedient, saying, hey, if you keep disobeying me, you know what's going to happen? Richard the Lionheart's going to come into your room at night and he's going to get you. And they're like, oh, no, not Richard, you know. And so they were terrified of him. The Muslims were terrified of him. And even Saladin was scared of facing him in battle because everybody knew that Richard's charming, but he's hot-tempered. And once he gets into a fight, man, you're probably not going to win against him. So you definitely, definitely had that. And so... Was there success in the Third Crusade? Absolutely. Did it achieve its ultimate goal of getting Jerusalem? No. Uh, its achievements, though, I mean, just to, like how it all kind of finishes. When it became clear to Richard that he could not recapture Jerusalem, he will meet with Saladin face-to-face -to, -face to form a treaty in 1192. Now, as one last thing, Richard tried to bribe him. He's like, Saladin, my sister's really pretty. I know she's not supposed to marry a Muslim, but you could have her if I could have Jerusalem. And of course, his sister was like, no. And even Saladin's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so Richard's like, you know, that was his, his, last, uh, his last gamble to try to get Jerusalem. He had traded his sister to a bunch of pagans just so he could get Jerusalem. Um, and so, yeah, that didn't happen. So they agree upon a treaty. And what the, what the treaty did is it gave the Crusaders a strip of coastland from Acre to Ascalon, which was southwest of Jerusalem. So it did not kick the Crusaders out of the Holy Land, um, but they didn't have Jerusalem. And they still had the most valuable city there economically, which was Acre. Furthermore, Saladin said, access to Jerusalem for all Christians is guaranteed. We will never stop a Christian from coming to Jerusalem, spending time here, and enjoying the sights. And so Richard's like, okay, I could deal with that, you know. You're honorable. Um, you know, Christians are actually doing pretty well under your rule. Um, so they were able to shake on it, and Richard will uh, eventually go home. Now, when it comes to this third crusade, it was the crusade above all other crusades that captured the imagination of Western Europe and romanticized the crusades, meaning like a lot of poems about Richard and Saladin's contest was written, a lot of odes to both of them, um, songs being written, books being written, because these were two of the greatest warrior leaders of any age. For them both to live at the same time and both to square off against each other, I could see why it inspired so much imagination back then. And remember, the whole Robin Hood story comes out of this. Well, King Richard's off fighting the Crusades. His you know, little wimpy brother, Prince John, and the Sheriff of Nottingham are raising taxes. And so the Crusader nobleman who returned from the Crusades, Robin of Loxley, starts stealing from the rich and gives to the poor because he's trying to 
keep Richard on the throne from the schemes of Richard's little sneaky brother, uh, Prince John, right? Now, was Robin Hood real or is that all made up? It's probably made up. Uh, although there is like a cup, there are a couple English documents that have a person at the time named Robin. And so people try to make a big deal out of that. But I'll just tell you, it's, it's Hollywood giving us a good story, in my opinion. Um, sometimes they give us a guy like Kevin Costner who doesn't have a British accent. And then Mel Brooks gives us Carrie Ewells who says, unlike some other Robin Hoods, I have a British accent. The point is, we know about the Third Crusade because of the Robin Hood story. So again, that shows how it's hit our imagination. Now, the Fourth Crusade, so the Third Crusade is the last one where it's epic. The four, every crusade after this is really bad. And the Fourth Crusade is just pure evilness. Um, from, it's from 1202 to 1204. It was proclaimed by Pope Innocent III. His Pope dates were 1198 to 1216. He, I'm going to talk about him in a different lesson. Pope Innocent III, more than any other pope, becomes the most powerful pope in all of papal history. In the sense, like, he, he will claim for the papacy more power than anybody uh, ever has before. And he will say some outrageous things about what it means to be the pope. And he's going to proclaim the most evil crusade ever. Now, I'm not blaming this crusade on him because he's actually going to excommunicate a lot of them for their evilness in this crusade. So you've got to give him credit for that. But all the soldiers in this crusade were French. And their goal was first to conquer Egypt. Let's go conquer Egypt because that's where a lot of the Muslims' base power is coming in Israel. So they have to get there, though. You can't just walk to Egypt. I mean, you can, but it would take longer. You just sail from Italy to Egypt. Bam, you're there. So they need transport. And the best transporters at this time were the Venetian merchants, the people of Venice. You know Venice, the city where all the roads are made out of water? These guys know how to sail. And Venice was an independent republic at this time that was capitalist before there was capitalism, but everything they were doing was capitalist. But they were also really greedy. So they had a very uh, robust economy through their international trade. They made a lot of money off transportation, but these guys were greedy. So they said, hey, how are you going to pay us to bring you to Egypt? They're like, well, uh, that's a good question. They're like, hey, we got an answer for you. Okay, How about you conquer the Christian city of Zara in Dalmatia, which was in Croatia and the Balkans? It used to belong to Venice. But a little while before this, it broke free and it joined the Catholic kingdom of Hungary. Now, Hungary's Catholic, France is Catholic. These guys are not supposed to fight each other. But these French knights wanted so bad to get to Egypt that they agreed to the Venetian demand. And so they go and conquer and put this city to the sword. So the fourth crusade begins not with crusaders killing Muslims, but with them killing their fellow Catholics in Zara. So Pope Innocent gets really mad. He excommunicates both the French crusaders and all the Venetians. Like the whole Republic of Venice is doomed to hell, according to Pope Innocent. Now, he will later restore those French crusaders to the church because they professed like we've sinned. They, you know, did what the Pope said. They had the professions of repentance. But he refused to the day of his death to lift the excommunication on the Venetians. It's like, you guys are pure evil. I am not lifting your excommunication. But these restored French knights still needed the Venetian merchants. And that's where the problem is. They have to have an unholy alliance with these rapscallions. So that's what the Fourth Crusade becomes. It continues as an unholy alliance between the Catholic French Crusaders and the excommunicated Venetians. Now, this is going to get even worse. 
Alexius Angelus, or Angelus, was the son of the deposed Byzantine emperor, Isaac II, um, who ruled from 1185 to 1195. Isaac was the emperor. Alexius was going to be the next emperor. But somebody ousted Isaac, and so now Alexius had to run because as the heir, his head would be on the chopping block. And so he's going to distract the Venetian and French force from their mission to go to Egypt. He's going to say, hey, we've seen what you uh, French knights did over in Hungary. I could use your help. He says, I promise you a large payment if you could restore me to the Byzantine throne. Kick out the usurper, put me back on the throne. You know Constantinople's rich. We will pay you well. And we will also pay the Venetians well. And so the Venetians are like, French crusaders, I think you should do this. And he even promised, I will make the Eastern Orthodox Church submit to the Roman Pope. You know, remember, these churches split. He's saying, you put me back on the throne, because remember, in the East, the emperor is able to tell the church what to do. It's not that way in the West, but in the East it was. So he's like, I'll make the Eastern Orthodox Church Catholic. That's how bad this guy wanted to be back in power. The interesting thing, though, was that Pope Innocent III, you would think he'd be like, yes, yes, do this. Bring them back under me. He did not want anything to do with the Venetian merchants to where he was even willing to keep the East not under his control. So I don't like Innocent III, but there are some integrity moves he makes, and that's one of them. Now, again, the Venetians were pleased with this whole idea because they're like, if we could get Constantinople, we'll control all of Eastern trade. Um, and the leader of Venice, their president, and they wouldn't call him a president, they called him something else, uh, but his name was Enrico Dandolo. He had a grudge against Byzantium because when he was in Constantinople as a young man, somebody on the street attacked him and blinded him in one of his eyes. Um, so he's always said, if I ever get a chance to stick it to Constantinople, I will. And then later, Constantinople kept refusing trading agreements that would have benefited him. So he'd been looking for a way to get revenge. And he's thinking, wait a second, we put this guy back on the throne. If he can't pay up, and I don't think he could pay up, we're going to plunder that whole city. That was Venice's plan, and to use these French crusader, uh, these French crusader knights to do that. Again, Pope Innocent III forbid the crusaders to fight the Byzantines, but they ignored him. They stormed Constantinople, they deposed the emperor, and they placed Alexius on the throne. So now they're like, okay, we've done what you've asked, pay us. And Alexius is like, uh, well... At the end of the day, I don't have the ability to pay you what I promised. And so, at the encouragement of the Venetians, the French besieged Constantinople in 1204, and they violently butchered a lot of the people in the population. Now, this is Christians killing Christians. They then looted the gold from Byzantium, and they went into the holy church, Hagia Sophia, the most beautiful church ever constructed in the world, and they stole its gold. Um, now, there was a French noble named Baldwin of Flanders. Um, he became the emperor of Constantinople. They deposed the guy. They just put in power. And they said, oh, you can't pay us. You're out. We're put one of our guys as emperor. And so now you have a Latin kingdom of Constantinople. They set up a Western Catholic bishop as the patriarch of, uh, of Constantinople. And now they forced with the sword the Orthodox Church to be subject to the Pope. Now, despite that, the Orthodox people of Byzantium hated the papacy. They refused to go along, and so they were oppressed the whole time. This kingdom's going to last for, for a little while. Um, so this is awful. 
This, this fourth crusade is just awful. Now, the consequences of it is uh, this was one of the darkest events in Christian history. First time crusading armies fought fellow Christians, all for money and power. Not a single good reason in this. Not a single one. And the Byzantine Empire never recovers from this. Now, they will recapture Constantinople from the Latins in 1261. So that means for over 50 years, it was Western Europeans controlling Constantinople. When the Byzantines got their own control back, they never recovered their strength. And so two centuries later, it will fall to the Turks, and it's called Istanbul today, instead of Constantinople. And I just say this whole situation is Istanbuloni. Um, it just it just is. This crusade wasn't even a battle between Muslims and Christians. It was a greedy war between Christians. And because of this, for the next 800 years, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, and Western Catholics hated each other even more because of greed. That's really what this uh, what this all came down to. So, just a, a very horrific. Horrific event was this, is what happened in, in this crusade. It's, it's, it's bad, you know, um, no, no real words for it. And when Constantinople falls, the Turks will push deep into Europe and almost conquer it. Um, in the 1500s, there was a real chance for the Ottoman Empire to conquer all of Europe and make it all Muslim. Again, it came down to a couple battles that stopped them. That would have never happened if Byzantium was not weakened through this treachery. Now, the next crusade is even worse. You might say, how could it get worse than this? It's called the Children's Crusade. It was a children's crusade led by somebody just like Albert. No, I'm just kidding. Um, in, in 1212, <laughs> in 1212, you, you have, it's a very short crusade. Um, and it's a bunch of little kids. It started by a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. Um, so the, t- the German boy, the 10-year-old, his name was Nicholas, and he claimed Jesus gave him a vision. And the same was said by a French boy named Stephen. And they said that, listen, the other crusades fell because they were fought for the wrong reason. But God has told we, the children, that we're going to conquer, you know, the, the Muslim lands. But we're going to do it through peace. We're not going to go with swords. We're going to just walk there and we're going to talk to the Muslims and they're all going to become Christians. And so 30,000 kids, preteens, 12 and under, joined this. It was a 30,000 army of a bunch of little tykes um, and they marched to the Holy Land. Now, you might be thinking, where were their parents? Well, many of them were probably orphans. Um, and then some, some adults were thinking, well, we're in a recession, less mouths to feed. And you know, if any, God's going to help anybody, it's going to be the children. They'll be all right. And so in a, a great moment of negligence, um, this crusade was allowed to happen. So the boys claim that God would part the waters in southern France like he did to the armies of Israel so they could cross. So they get to the waters. God doesn't part it. But the boys convince themselves, well, that's because what God really meant is he was going to do it in northern Italy. And the waters didn't part there either. But the kids kept going. God's with us. He's, he's going to help us. And so the children go through north Italy. They end up in Venice, the Venetian merchants. So in steps the Venetian merchants, and they say, hey, kids, 
you know what? We will bring you to Constantinople for free. That's where you need to get, right? You need to get to Constantinople. We'll drop you off there, and then you can walk to the, the Islamic lands and, you know, do your plan. And the kids are like, great, you guys are so nice. So they get on all these Venetian ships, and the Venetians sail them to Egypt and sell them all into slavery, and most of them were never heard from again. That is the Children's Crusade. A very, very horrible horrible event. And I put that little note there that should remind us that many of those who called themselves Christians during the medieval period were not truly believers. Christians, in scare quotes, from the beginning of the Crusades acted without mercy and displayed barbarism. And to look at 30,000 confused kids and rather than say, go back to your parents to say, we can make money off these kids by selling them into slavery to our enemies. That's just, that's horrible. Now, the other Crusades, I just lump all the rest under other because there's none that are fantastic like the third one um, or the first one after this. But there were some other Crusades. None will rival the first four. There wasn't a great deal of zeal anymore. Think about it. The whole zeal for the Crusades was these Muslims stopped pilgrimages. After Saladin, pilgrimages were allowed. They weren't being stopped. So a lot of knights are like, why are we going to go fight over this? We have access to Jerusalem, and we could do it without being killed and killing others. So that's why all the later crusades were just so much less. Um, and so really the only one of note after the other ones was the sixth crusade from 1228 to 1229, and it was led by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Um, reign dates 1210 to 1250. He was strange, but he was gifted. Right? He was a cultured ruler in the Middle Ages. A lot of liberals like him um, because he had laws that were a lot more equitable than some other uh, countries at that time, and he respected his enemies more than what was normal for the time. He had a lot of respect for Muslim culture, and he'd actually just walk around his, his palace in Turkish clothes, wearing a Turkish costume, acting like he was a sultan. Um, and then he'd say, you know what? The sultans take multiple wives. I'm going to take multiple wives. So he was a Christian, but he lived like a Muslim. And he was a foe of the papacy. There were times he even attacked the Pope's troops and would take land from the Popes. In fact, Pope Gregory IX excommunicated him. Um, so again, uh, that might be a reason why a lot of people today like him, because he was just a maverick, didn't go along with, with what was normal back then. So how does his crusade go down? Well, it's not a fight. He shows up to the Holy Land, and it wasn't a war. It was a state visit. He's like, let me just meet with the leader. Let's talk about this. Let's use diplomacy, which, again, is another good trait from him. And so he talks them into giving him Jerusalem. They're, they're like, you know what? Maybe Jerusalem would be better under European control. And we'll give you Bethlehem and Nazareth as well. Um, and so it was the sultan that did this, the sultan of Egypt, Sultan, sultan al-Kamil, in 1229 gives Jerusalem, Nazareth, and Bethlehem to Frederick. So now it's under the control of Western Christians. Again, Frederick then crowns himself king of Jerusalem, and this will last until eh, 1244, so we're talking 15 years. Um, but then the Muslims will recapture it and say, How, what, what, why did this even happen? And so they'll go recapture it, and after that, the West never reclaims Jerusalem again. Now, the, the nature 
of these other crusades. It's also worth noting that not all the fighting was Christian versus Muslim in the later crusades. By the time you get to the 1200s, which is the 13th century, you're going to have some Christian forces make alliances with some Muslim forces, and together they will fight other alliances of Muslim Christian forces. So at this point, it just becomes regular old politics. That It's not Christians versus Muslims. It's now, well our interests against their interests, and we're willing to fight on the side of Muslims if it helps our interest, and they're willing to do the same. Um, also around this time, the Mongols from Asia under Genghis Khan come and invade the Middle East, and they decimated the Arabs as well. Now, the one thing that's going to save Islamic civilization is they convert one of the Mongols to Islam. Um, but for the most part, everything just starts falling apart during this time. By the end of the 13th century, all the Latin territory in the Middle East had fallen to the Muslims. The final thing to fall, and this is what officially ends the Crusades in 1291, was the capital of Acre, the, the crown jewel that made all the money. Eventually that falls as well. Um, and despite it, despite the fact that the Crusades were now clearly over after Acre, you still had popes talking about it. You still had them saying, we need to go back. We need to conquer all of this. But nobody ever raised the sword again. They're like, we've heard this speech before. We are done with Crusades. Even though the Christians were done with Crusades, um, some Muslims weren't. And I will say this, that last bullet the Muslims got a taste of their own medicine for two centuries. The Christians did to them what they had been doing to Christian societies since the beginning of Islam. So they got a taste of their own medicine, and for the most part, most Muslims and most Christians were tired of it at this point. You know what? We don't need to fight each other anymore. But there was one group of Turks, the Ottomans, that they will still keep that jihad spirit and they will keep the, the war going into Europe, and there will be new Islamic invasions of the West. Otherwise, most Muslims have no interest in fighting us anymore, and most Christians had no interest in fighting them. So that ends the, the Crusades, the military campaigns. Now, I do have to talk about the consequences, the effects of the Crusades, and before I do that, I really quickly want to talk about the monastic orders of the Crusades, and I'll go fast through this. Two lessons ago, I talked about monasticism and how you had monastic orders, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Cistercians, the White Friars, Gray Friars, you know, Black Friars and all that. Well, you're going to get some more friars, but these ones, in my opinion, are some of the most interesting because these are like warrior monks. Um, these were uh, monks that were knights at the same time. In Europe, that doesn't happen. In, well, in some parts it will, but for the most part, this is, a, this is a, a product of the Crusades. It was religious, military, monastic orders. It's a form of monasticism that, uh, that I didn't discuss before because, again, it, it fits better with the Crusades. The most significant orders, and there's more than these three, but the most significant were the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem, the Knights of the Temple, or Knights Templar, and the Teutonic Knights. Now, they combine the monastic way of life, living in monasteries, being a monk, studying the word of God, but they combine it with chivalry, being a warrior and knowing how to use the sword. So they were chaplains that were allowed to shoot back, unlike chaplains today. Um, and so their members were simultaneously monks and, and knights. Now, their stated purpose, the reason they were founded is we exist to help transport pilgrims to the Holy Land. We will give them shelter and protection while there. And if we are attacked, we will battle uh, Muslims and, and Turks and, and all that. So that was their goal. Now, let me talk first about the, the Knights of St. John. They were founded in 1048, a little before the First Crusade, but the Crusades are what caused them to flourish and grow. 
Pope Paschal II, 1099 to 1118, he gave them papal recognition. Remember, these orders have to be signed off on by the Pope for them to be official. And they were nicknamed the Hospitallers or Hospitallers. And the reason for that is they were known for setting up hospitals. And they would help the wounded and help the sick. So they're a holy order. They could fight, but they could also heal. Now, the Knights of the Temple or the Knights Templar, uh, and if you've played games like Assassin's Creed or if you're caught up in all your conspiracy theories, these guys are the butt of a lot of that. Um, they were founded in 1118, and they get their name from the fact that they founded their base at uh, the temple, where the Temple Mount was. And so that's why they're called the Knights Templar. Now, there's all these rumors that they found the Ark of the Covenant and all these ancient treasures and the Holy Grail and the Spear of Destiny, and they've hid them all on Oak Island, um, you know, in Canada. And that's what the whole Curse of Oak Island show is all about. And I don't know, I don't think they found any of that stuff. But I do think they found a lot of gold, and I do think they might be the ones who put it at Oak Island, and I do hope those brothers get to the bottom of it and, and pull all this stuff out. I don't think it's just Spanish treasure that was put there, because there are too many clues on that island that actually point to Templars. But that's all I'm going to say about that, because um, it will fascinate me too much, and I'll never finish. Um, now, both groups, Hospitallers and Templars, they fight with bravery and ferocity against the Turks. Uh, they both also become extremely rich, wealthy organizations that have a wide geographic spread that goes well outside of the Middle East. Uh, when Saladin recaptured Jerusalem in 1187, both orders just moved their headquarters to Acre, and they're going to get even richer in Acre. And when Acre falls in 1291, the hospitalers, they're just going to move their headquarters eventually to one place, but then to Malta. And from Malta, which is this island, they defend Christian Europe from Muslim attack for 300 years. So they served a, a really strong military purpose, but still they set up those hospitals. Um, and of course, both these pictures are of Templars. They were known for their Red Cross. Uh, the Templars, they settled in France, and they got so rich that most of the crowns of Europe were in debt to them. They became the biggest bankers in Europe. And in one of the dirtiest political moves in the Middle Ages, the French king Philip the Fair, who was not fair, um, convinced the Pope to sign off on this. And in 1285, well, he ruled from 1285 to 1314, but in 1312, he has the Templars disbanded. The, their leaders get arrested. They get publicly executed for blasphemy. They're accused of believing all sorts of evil things. Now, if they believe these things, then yes, they were heretics. But most historians are under the impression that they actually held normal Christian beliefs or maybe some form of Freemason beliefs that exist today, but that were still tied to Christianity um, and that the king just trumped up these charges so he could kill them and take their gold. And he killed a lot of them and he did take their gold, um, but not all of it. A lot of their gold was hidden because they were able to see this coming. And by the way, the reason why Friday the 13th is seen as a bad luck day is because the king sprung this trap on them on Friday the 13th. That's where the whole bad luck gets uh, associated with that. It doesn't really have anything to do with the guy at the hockey mask. Um, but, uh, but, but pretty much the, the Templars, a lot of their gold, as the story goes, made its way over to England. Um, and then the Templars reformed themselves as the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and then eventually got that gold over to the Americas. And that's why I'm waiting to see what happens when these guys get to the money pit. I know I said I wasn't going to bring it up again, but there, there, is, there is some truth to all that. Um, but I, I think that because 
the way the Templars were killed because some of the gold escaped, because it's clear that the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and all the other Mason groups have pulled a lot of stuff from the Templars, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that they're the Illuminati, that they're this secret organization that's taking over the world. And I got caught up in that like 15 years ago. I don't believe it anymore. But, the, you know, there's just, yeah, a lot of conspiracy theories around them. The last group of knights were the Teutonic Knights. I mean, these guys terrifying. I mean, they're just, they, they look just clean and deadly. And then they put little crazy ears on their helmets, you know, or bull horns. I wouldn't want to, you know, fight these guys. <laughs> they are intense. But anyhow, the Teutonic Knights were different from the other two because they were a Germanic order. They were only Germans. And they were founded by merchants from German cities in 1190 during the Third Crusade. The Pope recognized, uh, recognized them in 1191. Um, and most of their activities never made it to the Middle East. It was actually in Germany and Eastern Europe. But one thing you have to understand is not all of Europe was Christian yet. There were still some pagans left. In what we call Poland today, you had the Prussian kingdom, and they were still pagan. And so in 1226, they're going to begin their campaigns against them. Um, and they will conquer Prussia in its entirety by 1283. So it's a long war, but these... Teutonic Knights are pretty much a conquering army, all in their own sense, and yet they're monks at the same time. Now, once they forge their way into Prussia and gain control, then Dominican missionaries, which are not fighters, but they're just good at converting people, they move into the territory, and eventually they bring Prussia within the Catholic fold. It was only, uh, only the eastern part of Prussia remained under control of the Teutonic Knights, and then the western part um, was conquered by Poland, but in all parts they became Christian, or Catholic, right? Uh, but we're just calling it Christian generally. Um, the Teutonic Knights also vanquished the pagans of uh, Christianized, or they vanquished the pagans and Christianized Latvia um, and Estonia, those two little kingdoms uh, directly uh, west of Russia. The Lithuanians, if you want to know, were the last large pagan group in Europe. Okay, so, and they were still pagans up even 800 years ago, um, but they were the last ones to be brought into the fold. And again, it was through the fierce conflict with the Teutonic Knights that they came to uh, Catholic Christianity. And it's interesting, they didn't want to officially lose to the Teutonic Knights, so they make an alliance with Catholic Poland and say, listen, you know, just help us against the Teutonic Knights and we'll become Catholic. And they did. They started intermarrying the Lithuanians and eventually they embraced Catholicism and it kept the Teutonic Knights out of Lithuania. Um, so that's the story of the Teutonic Knights. And so what I'll finish with then is uh, just quickly flying through the consequences of all this, of the Crusades. It did, what, you can't deny this, the Crusades increased the power of the Pope a lot. Popes inspired the Crusades. They seemed to be Christians of, or they seemed to be the champions of Western Christianity, <clears throat> and they successfully united Christians against Muslim threat. Now, the Pope calling the Crusades set the precedent. Like, can the Pope call all of Christianity to war? Well, he did, and they listen. Well, apparently he can. And so henceforth, everybody's like, all right, if the Pope calls us to war, we should go. He's got the power to do this. In fact, this power will be extended beyond the idea of religious war, and it's what's going to be used to start the Inquisition. If the Pope could call all of Christendom to war against Muslims, then he could call the kings of Catholic Europe to go to war against the people within their countries that the Catholic Church doesn't accept. And so this, this broad power 
that comes out of the Crusades actually becomes the Inquisition, and they're going to go after some of the... We're going to talk about these groups in an upcoming lesson, but the uh, Albigensians, uh, uh, the Waldensians, and the Hussites. Now, the Waldensians and the Hussites, they were good Christians. They were Protestants before there were Protestants. The Albigensians, they were heretics. But either way, all three groups are going to be hunted down and attacked because the Pope gained this power out of the Crusades. The Crusades also set the scenario where um, Christians could take this concept of indulgence, indulgences for granted. What I mean is, remember how the popes got people to go to war? They said, if you go to war in a crusade, all your sins are forgiven. And all, like all the sins that you would have to burn off in purgatory are forgiven, you know, because you're doing this good deed. And once the Pope said that, and once knights started going to war, everybody else in Europe assumed, okay, indulgences must be a real thing. The church, under the authority of the Pope, must be allowed to knock years off of your purgatory as long as you do a good deed. Eventually, once the concept is accepted, the Pope is then able to say, well, war is not the only good deed. You could give the church money. And if you give us enough money, that will knock years off of purgatory for you. And then it goes a little further than that. You know what? It's not even money for you. You could pay money to get years off your dead relatives in purgatory. And all that is what's going to set up the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, when he sees that, that's going to be the final thing that's like, all right, I need to nail something to the wall and we need to address this. But the whole idea of indulgences started with the fact that a pope said, if you go fight for us, I promise all your sins are forgiven. That's an indulgence. Uh, well, really legitimize that idea and made it taken for granted in Europe. Now, the Crusades, in addition to that, they didn't just strengthen the Pope, they strengthened the kings. Remember, uh, feudalism, which came in the like 800s, 900s, weakened the kings of Europe. And so power was decentralized, and these noble lords with their knights had more power, and the kings kind of had to beg them for help and stuff like that. But with the Crusades, now those kings got all the power, and those nobles now became really just pawns of the kings. Um, so the European monarchies are going to become a lot more powerful. The nobility loses control over their local communities. Some of the communities use money saved up or earned from the Crusades to buy their freedom. Like, hey, our city's not under a noble anymore. We are our own city. We elect our own mayor. And so this is going to lead to commoners, some commoners becoming as rich as the nobles. And uh, certain uh, European societies are going to have to say, we're going to have to let these guys be part of parliament as well. So all that comes out of this. But again, it weakens the nobility. Uh, and, and remember, the nobility needed money to fund their crusading expeditions. And so um, this leads to a decline in feudalism. And it leads to an increase in the government centralizing. The knights themselves, remember, the knights used to keep the status quo for the nobles. Now the knights become the big shots themselves. They were changed by the Crusades. And that's going to weaken the feudal system. When they come home, a lot of them are like, I'm not going to go back to the manor and keep the peasants in control for this noble lord. I've seen the rest of the world. I had some fun. I, you know, had some adventure. Um, and the thing is, I'm not just going to have this boring life live for somebody else. So a lot of knights decided to do their own things, kind of like Ronin Samurai would in Japan at around the same time. So they start founding their own cities, their own manors. They become their own class of nobles. They found guilds, and a guild is kind of like a worker union. So some of them are going to be like, we're the knights that 
like run the guild of blacksmithing. Well, we're the knights that run the guild of Harry Potter, whatever it might be. There's no Harry Potter. But they would pick, they would pick what they wanted and then they would set up their little flag and, and they would be the controllers of that particular industry in the economy. Um, again, this weakens feudalism. They become these leaders of these, these tradesmen. The Knights of the Templar are, again, the most famous with their banking. They became the, the heads of the banks. Um, a lot of new cities were built through all of this. And so, um, and when you have urbanization, you have a, a decrease in the uh, rural uh, communities. And again, all this is only serving the interest of the crown. Um, the Crusades also widened the division and hatred between Eastern Orthodox and Western Catholic Christianity. The religious oppression uh, that the Western Crusaders inflicted on the Eastern Christians would not be forgotten. Uh, the conquest, the plundering, the weakening of Constantinople to where it could not stop the Turks from conquering them. That's all stuff that the Eastern uh, Orthodox people will not forget. Um, they just won't. <laughs> I remember... Um, when I was in my, my basic training as a chaplain, I was battle buddies with a Catholic priest and a Russian, Orthodox, um, a, a Russian Orthodox monk. And the Russian Orthodox was mad at the Eastern Orthodox because he said, there are a bunch of sissies that capitulated at the Council of whatever to the papacy. And I'm just like, I love hearing you guys fight um, because it's all this historical bad blood. And, and a lot of it does go back to this this stuff. And so I'm just like, as the Protestant, just smiling as I'm hearing them uh, talk about this stuff. And, you know, you, you dive into church history and you kind of know what they're, they're griping with each other about. Um, the Crusades also left a legacy of bitterness and hatred between Christians and Muslims. Even though the, the Byzantines and Muslims had been fighting each other for a long time, meaning Christians and Muslims had been fighting each other, there was still respect between them. But the nature of the Crusades, the ruthless behavior of the Crusaders towards the Muslims, especially what they did in Jerusalem, that leaves a mark. And they get there. And remember, Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations. They didn't even try to convert the Muslims. They just saw them as enemies to kill. Uh, so it's like you go over there. I mean, the least you could have done is preach the gospel. That wasn't even on their mind. They're like, no, our goal is just to conquer cities and kill whoever gets in our way. Um, and we're not going to have compassion as we do that. And so that ends up heightening the religious intolerance between the two groups. And it led to much later cruelty back and forth between the two groups. And a lot of Muslims in the Middle East today still see the West as crusaders. Anytime American troops go over to Muslim lands, they say we're crusaders. That's what they call us. Uh, they, they never forgot this. Anytime Anybody from the West goes over there in a combat operation, it is crusaders trying to steal our stuff, kill our women, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just not true. We go there for different reasons. Um, but they, they just will not see it outside of the crusades paradigm. And again, it was the crusaders that, that kind of uh, created that situation. So anyhow, conclusion. The final result was, well, actually, conclusion's the bottom part of this. I just didn't want to make another slide just for three bullets, saving electronic paper here. Um, so the final result is that um, education improved in Europe. You know, the interesting thing is we call it the Dark Ages. It's not like it was dark. The sun still came up. And there was a lot of good intellectual activity in Europe in these times. But with the Gothic and Viking invasions, Europe forgot its Roman Greco history of the philosophers like Aristotle and all that. The Muslims, as they conquered the East, the Eastern Empire, 
they became acquainted with Aristotle. So the Muslims became sophisticated and civilized, while the Europeans became kind of backward and barbaric. Through the Crusades, the Western Europeans get reintroduced to it. The Muslims, when they did have good talks, you know, your Aristotle is pretty brilliant. Well, who's Aristotle? You don't know who Aristotle is? He's your guy. Well, never heard of him. Here, you know, and then they give him, you know, this is Aristotle's writings. And then these Europeans are like, I'm taking this back to Europe. And so through the wars, through the, the channel of the Muslims, um, what's going to happen is a lot of this Roman Greco history is going to be reintroduced to Western Europe, and that's going to start the Renaissance. If you want to know where the Renaissance came from, it came out of, out of this. Um, and it will influence scholasticism and the rise of the university, which I'll be talking about in a later lesson. So, conclusion. The Crusades definitely left a blemish on the Lord's Church. The cruelty and lack of Christian ethics on display tarnished the Lord's reputation. Uh, I do still think the first crusade had merit in terms of use ad bellum. If you remember, that's Augustine's principle of war. Is there justice in going to war? Yes, the Muslims took Christian land. They were constantly attacking and they stopped pilgrimages. So was there a good reason to go to war? Yes. But once you have a just reason to go to war, you have to fight justly. That's use in bellow. And they were not fighting justly. That's the problem. The first crusade had merit in terms of use ad bellum, but it lacked use in bellow, meaning they were not just in how they fought. They were pretty stinking wicked. Um, the second crusade was simply an attempt to hold on to the gains of the first crusade. The third crusade was an attempt to reclaim the, loss, reclaim the losses of those gains. Um, and again, the use ad bellum, just, it's debatable in these crusades. It's there in the first. I don't think you can make the argument for it in the second and the third. The fourth crusade and after were all just morally disastrous. And so the results of, of this are felt today. So I think that it's very difficult for us to talk about the crusades as if they actually were Christian, but they were done in the name of Christ. And that's why it's a huge topic of Christian history. And with the crusades now being done, with us being done talking about it, we're pretty much up to the end of the 1200s in church history. So we've been covering a lot of stuff. We've only got 300 years to go because this class only goes up to 1500. So there's really only a few lessons left, just to let you guys know. It's not going to go on forever and ever. I'll probably think of something else to teach when this one ends. But, uh, but we're, we're getting...